you have spoken to the players and uh, we've had a full and frank discussion and uh, we all agree that the uh, smaller fish guys are not just accredited clubs and their counties but uh, to homo sapiens all over the world I want nothing to do with that podcast absolutely not the smaller fish not for me no way we're only the small little fish out there so we are and uh, we're trying hard to make it through but it's hard to get the brakes when you're the smaller fish Welcome along to Smaller Fish GEA in association with Benetti Menswear. So Rob Carney caused a bit of a stir this August when we saw him tugged out for Cooley Kickhams. This was 17 years after he last played for them in 2004 in a county final. And I'm delighted to say he's the first guest on Woolly Meats here on Smaller Fish. How's it going, Rob? Yeah, good, Woolly. Thanks for having me on. No bother, no bother at all. So you're 18 to 1 to make the loud panel um, back when we saw you make your debut. Um, have you any scoop for us here or anything? I'd say she's gone to 180 to 1 now. <laughs> well, like, what, what, I was looking back. I was looking, keeping my eye out for you. So you played those two league games and you, did, you didn't really feature in the championship at all. No, so like it was, it was all, all quite late in the day before I'd made the decision to go back. And I'd already signed a contract with Premier Sports to do some of their rugby coverage. Um, right. And there was a couple of the games that fell on days when Leinster are playing and I was due on TV for that that I couldn't make for one reason or another. Um, so I didn't get to play as much as I would have liked. Um, and had I, you know, had I got to play a little bit more earlier on towards the end of the league in a couple of those early championship games, you know, I, I was growing every single week. Um, but, you know, I, I had very little impact on the field, on the group. You know, when I look back on the whole thing. Right. Okay. So next year, I presume you're not throwing in the towel. You're going to have to prioritize your your Cooley Kickhams over your rugby punditry. Is this what we're, we're, we'll have to give you a pep talk here? Well, you can read in between whatever <laughs> lines you want. You're, the, the lines you're reading between there are a little bit different to my ones. Um, nah, to be honest with you, Wally, I, I, I think I'll, I'll pack it in all together. Really? Um, yeah, I think so. You know, it, was, it, was, it was more selfishly just something that, that I wanted to do. Um, before I, I completely hung up the boots in, in every regard. You know, like it's it's tough work on going back there two, three times a week. And I always say my admiration for for county and club players who are going home, working in Dublin or living different parts of the country and making that commitment is enormous. Um, you know, you get out of the car after an hour and a half and you're straight onto the field. And, you know, it's it's it's, it's tough to... It's tough to maintain that, um, and the fact that I wasn't particularly good at it. You know, I was I was a good football player when I was coming up through the ranks, and you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, I was knocking around minor county scene for three years. I was playing a, a club county final, um, and I was good, but. You know, I, I knew I was never going to be able to get to any sort of that level, but I didn't think that I would have regressed as much as I had. Right. But like, I mean, I, I stopped playing when I was about 32 and I went back playing intermediate, maybe a seven year gap without playing. And I, I found myself doing terribly stupid things, you know, kicking when for a score when I shouldn't have been, you know, like like this kind of really raw you know, kind of fella who didn't have much of a football brain at all. Like I can only imagine 17 years and you spent those 17 years playing a completely different sport. I know. And and I, I suppose maybe naively I thought that because I played it so much growing up and, you know, it was, it was a ball game that I played 
you know, a lot when I was younger that I could yeah. get back and pick it up. But the whole, even the whole idea of, you know, playing rugby, I was always moving forward a field, you know, and then you go into a full forward line in, in, in Gaelic football and you're sort of like moving backwards and the ball's coming into a different direction. I probably would have been more suited uh, playing in defence yeah, just because it, it it makes more sense from you know from what I did on a rugby field for so long, um. But yeah, I I did find it difficult. The, the the level of conditioning blew me away as well, Um that was the single biggest thing that I noticed. You know, in in rugby, if there's a knock on or if a ball goes into touch, you can be ninety seconds, two minutes before play resumes again. Yeah. You know, in Gaelic football, the referee blows a whistle and you're five seconds and you're gone again. I played a few games in the middle of the field and I was up and down. And then I finally got the ball and no energy to do anything with it. You're just hand passing it on to anyone who's available. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And you've lost five kg from your kind of rugby uh, build, I was reading. So, like, I mean, you would be a little bit more, you know, aerobically um, able to run, carrying less weight. But that that's the bit that is that is the big thing. And I've I've played rugby, you know, just at a port leash level. The amount of breaks in it, you can always catch your breath. Oh, you can always catch your breath. Now, there's times in play that, you know, it might be gone for a couple of minutes, and you're up one end of the field, you're across, and particularly yeah, with yeah. full back, you're always on the move. You know, if you're caught napping for for half a second, you can be exploited. Um, but there's no time to get your recovery in, in Gaelic football. And listen, on, on the rugby field, there was always times when you'd, you'd manage to get your breath back. That's the thing. And like, I mean, I suppose, you know, the training for both are probably geared around the fact that rugby probably more explosive and you need that kind of power. Whereas GEA is, you know, more have to go for 70 minutes type fitness. Exactly. It's just complete speed endurance. And and that's what you see from, you know, from the, these Gaelic footballers, particularly at, at county level. Their ability just to keep moving without stopping is exceptional. And I think it's it's probably the biggest point that, that I underappreciate it. But I think that the onlooker as well, there's a, there's a real underappreciation from from the viewer at home as to how fit some of these athletes are. Yeah. So you mentioned playing minor. So we know you played three years minor. You got to a Leinster semi-final, Dublin Beachy after a replay. And then you went straight to senior and played a county, you know, a county final. You lost it. That was just before you signed the Leinster contract. Like, I mean, you must have been a very good player. Only very good players play three years minor. You know, like, I mean, at that time when you were playing minor, I was reading that one of the the replay you had to come home from France and another match you were away with the Irish schoolboys in Australia. Was it always like a, a kind of a side sidekick gig to the rugby? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a sidekick gig because I was always pretty lucky that the the two calendars yeah. always differed a little bit. So it made it really easy for me to, I suppose, commit to two full seasons. Um so listen, rugby was always my first love. And I'm perfectly honest with you, I, I thought if there was a chance of making a career out of it, well, then it would be silly not to take that option. Um, but Gaelic football was, was the sport that I, I played most of until I was 15, 16. Um, and then obviously went away to boarding school where rugby was number one sport there. And, and then things just went on from there. And I signed my first academy contract when I was 18. And the day I signed it, um, I was told I'd never play an, another game of Gaelic football again. 
Right. But like, I mean, you were with Clongos. I'm surprised they didn't put their foot down with you even, you know, playing minor at the time to take that so seriously. Again, they probably the calendars didn't cross over, maybe. The calendars never crossed over. Um, so I never had to make any any decisions that were too tough. There was a few times that I did have to make tough decisions and, and it was always the rugby one that came out on top. Um, but, you know, the, it was always the... It was always the great thing about being able to play those two sports was that they were generally on at different times of the year. Yeah, exactly. So the last match you played, like I said, was the county final in 2004. You lost that county final. Um, Cooley Kickhams haven't been doing too well in recent uh, history in county finals. But um, like, I mean, Pete McGrath was your manager. I didn't actually know that until I was reading it um, there last week. Like uh, any any words of advice or anything from him that stays stays with you? Uh, nothing in particular. It was, it was so long ago. Um, but he was a great man. He was, he was a great, uh, he was just a real good man manager. You could, you could understand that, that he wasn't just a good GAA coach, but he would have been one of those people who you could put across many different sports and he'd still get the very best out of people. Um, you know, he, he was very tactically astute even back then. Although the game has changed enormously in in all of those years, um, but it was it was brilliant to to be able to work under someone like him who did, at that time, even have a real level of professionalism to how he was coaching, how he wanted his players to, I suppose, to behave on a week to week basis, um, and it it gave me a really good a really good stepping stone into into professional sport. What what was the reaction then? So it was the day after that county final loss, Leinster signed you up. What was your reaction when they told you that's it now for the GEA, Rob? Forget about that nonsense. Uh, I listen at the time. I was happy enough because I always wanted to pursue rugby. They actually right. wanted me to sign the contract earlier on before that, um, but I was adamant that I wanted to finish off and and to to finish off that Loud County Championship. I played a minor game three weeks before that county final. And I tore my rec fem, my quad, in that minor game. And it was my first ever muscle tear. So I didn't really know too much about it. Um, And I ended up playing three weeks later in that uh, county final. I couldn't kick with my left foot. So I was using my right foot the whole game. And that quad injury still gives me trouble to this game or to this day. Um, If there was one of of a few games over the course of my career when you say, no, I shouldn't have played that one, I was injured, (laughs) that was was definitely one of them. Yeah, can you see the the fellas in the Aussie rules coming back and playing with their clubs, some of them, and it's always like, Jesus, if they get injured, like, you know, that's the professional career. It's on a, you know, the, the pressure is there to play. But I suppose at that time you had, you know, bigger fish to fry for your your profe- your your livelihood, I suppose, and your career. Yeah, well, I was I was still only eighteen, so I was raw and I was naive to all of this, and I'd never been injured. And I thought, listen, I'm not going to get injured. I've been doing this my whole life, and it was my first, like I say, it was my first muscle strain. Um, God only knows how many I had in the fifteen years after that. Um, but like, listen, you learn from these things, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So come here, talk to us about fullback because, like, I mean, there's a lot of GEA players listen to this show. And if they're anything like me, rugby is a very intimidating game to go out to your local rugby club because, you know, you're watching it on television and you haven't a clue what a penalty was given for. You think you have it figured out and then, you, you know, you don't know what this was for. And it's a very technical game. And, you know, it can be a little bit, Jesus, if I can't go out there because I don't, I wouldn't have a clue what's or how to play it. Is fullback the greatest position 
for a GA player to go out to their local rugby club. And try, I'm not. Try, I'm not trying to make your your <laughs> the position you're brilliant at. You know, seem easy. But it. I played fullback. I played out half. I couldn't have had a clue about half because I didn't have enough of a knowledge of the game. But I found myself able to play fullback, you know, to a, a reasonable level. Yeah, it's well, you're not going to be in the front row or the front five, that's for sure. Uh, locking down scrums at 120 or 30 kilos, I probably it it probably is the back three, maybe a little bit of centre. They would be the ones, the positions that would would be most relatable. Um, you know. I, I, Kicking and catching, I played a lot of midfield. So that was always the skill that I was best at at Gaelic football. Yeah. And if you transfer that directly across to a rugby position that would most be suited, you'd probably say full back. Um, so the, all the skills that I learned playing Gaelic up through the years were the ones that were, were most transferable onto a rugby field. That's, and like, I mean, I suppose when you were playing midfield and catching it over your head, like I could never really do that in Gaelic football, but it was brilliant catching it into my chest. Like in rugby, most the majority of caught into your chest, you know, unless you're Shane Horgan catching a, you know, a Rodge kind of crossfield kick, you might have to go over your head. But like it's going to your chest, which, you know, technically for a GA player isn't as hard. No, it's like you have to understand the shape of the rugby ball makes it very difficult to catch over your yeah. head as well. Um you know, you, you've got a few freaky athletes in the world who can take balls over their heads. They might have had some sort of Aussie rules background when they were a little bit younger. Um, but it, it is a very difficult skill to master. And it's it's obviously a lot more high risk. So if you can get away with catching the ball in your chest, you're obviously better off trying to do that as many times as possible. Yeah. But like, I mean, you were you were phenomenal at catching. Like, I mean, your jump off the ground, you know, the like I, I, I think when I was watching, like you almost changed the game and teams stopped kicking it <laughs> towards you. You know what I mean? Did you have to almost reinvent yourself? Because they're not kicking it at me anymore. Um, a little bit. After after a few years at the start, you know, when teams kept kicking you, you'd notice that they'd start going after the wingers a little bit more. Um, but one of the good things about rugby is that if you put the opposition under so much pressure, they just kick it eventually because they don't want the ball anymore. Yeah. Um, so they just give it back to you. And um, I didn't really have to reinvent myself too much because it's always been a big part of the game and it still is a big part of the game. Um, you know, so it, it, it was it was definitely the skill on the rugby field that I was best at. And, I, you know, I attribute a lot of that to, to Gaelic football, too. And so much of it, you know, 80 percent of it is all about timing um, and just making sure that you're at your optimal height when the ball is closest to you. Yeah, at that just at that pitch, the perfect pitch where you're at the exactly. top of your jump. It's I suppose it's not it's not always easy. Like I mean, it, the difference between GEA is most of the players are running in the same direction. You're running towards a ball to catch it at full speed and going off the air, as other players are running towards you. That's a big that's a big difference, right? Yeah, it is a big difference, and and that's why when I say when I went back to Gaelic football, that was probably the one concept that I couldn't grasp most, and a lot of times you'd be running backwards to try and catch a ball too. Um, and I was almost tripping <laughs> over myself like in, in on the floor in pieces because it's something that I'd never really done. Yeah, but the big mistake, I suppose, you played, just to go back to Cooley uh, Kickens, is full forward. It's a disaster. Like, I mean, usually this, there's an old-fashioned, I speak about this on the shoulders, this old-fashioned kind of view that as you move on in years, you go into the full forward line. But like, I mean... You have a, a young fella slapping at you and marking you really tightly. Like that's no way to ease yourself back into it. Like oh. I suppose, 
midfield made more sense, but like you said, centre back, drop off your man, have a free roll. That's where you really want to be going. Yeah, midfield made made more sense at the start, but I just didn't have the legs to keep going, uh, even at intermediate level. Full forward, oh. I went down training for, for the first few weeks back in, geez, I don't know when it was, maybe August or September, and they threw me in full forward, and I took two or three marks the night of training and scored a goal and two points, and they thought, geez, this is a handy <laughs> game. We'll just keep launching them in balls. You can mark them and knock them over. Needless to say, I didn't get any in the games that I was playing because, as you said, there's some little young lad or an old lad just pulling out of you, and you don't get any sort of space at all. Did my yeah. head in that, the grabbing of the jerseys when the ball is 40 metres away. <laughs> Yeah, that's not, it's not, I suppose you don't get that, you don't get that in rugby. That's one thing. There's no off the ball stuff really, I suppose, unless you're maybe stuck at the bottom of a rook or something. Yeah, well, no, even then, like there's so many cameras on a rugby match now that there is no off the ball stuff. Yeah. Um, and it would be good if, if, if it got scant, stamped out of Gaelic a little bit, because it is, it's annoying to play in and it's tough to watch as well. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I was reading one of your regrets was not getting to the hundred caps. Like, I mean, you got so close and then your phone popped up and it's Andy Farrell. Um, I presume you had his number saved or maybe it was a number you didn't recognise. How did that... No, I, I had it saved at the time. <laughs> and it, it, those conversations are always pretty short because you wouldn't have had... A, if it was Joe Schmidt making the call, you probably would have had a longer conversation. But, you know, what was the point? It was a short conversation, I presume. Yeah, it was very short. It was It was 90 seconds long, I think. Right. Um, I'll listen after the World Cup I was I was 34 so I always knew I was going to be in limbo a little bit you know does a coach keep you on for another year or 18 months to try and bring some of the younger lads and try and nurture those a little bit or does he just make a clean break and move on um, and unfortunately it was it was the latter um, you know like like you said my biggest regret is not getting the 100 caps because it's, it's such a an elite club within this country to, you know, to play a hundred times for, for your country. It's, it's, it's an incredible honor. Um, you know, I, I missed, I think over just over 30 games with Ireland through injury. And, and some of them were small little grade one injuries that I was back five, six days later. And, you know, so I need to put it back on myself a little bit and take a little bit of the blame for that, that if I got better at understanding my body earlier on in my career and and doing the types of things in the gym or off the field to try and protect myself against some of those injuries, well, then maybe I would have got over the 100 caps. So, you know, it's, it's easy to blame other people. Um, but, you know, a lot of the time you have to look back inwardly and say, well, was there anything that I could have done to have enhanced my position at the time? And and probably learning to understand my body would have been the biggest thing. I think that that's what a lot of players say as they get older. They only kind of realise how to properly take care of themselves as they see the, the kind of clock ticking down a little bit. When you're in your 20s, you, you know, you don't give a shit. You're just playing and you're fit and you're, you know, you're flying it. Yeah, exactly. And the, the other side of that is it, it does take a long time to to understand your body and all the little intricacies of it, the things that work for you, the things that don't work for you. And, you know, strength and conditioning coaches have improved enormously over the last few years. So you rely on them a huge amount as well to coach you and to teach you. Um, but, you know, anytime I, I, I speak to a younger player now, I always say, learn how to understand your body as quickly as possible because it is your biggest asset. It's the single biggest thing that is going to help you enhance a career 
Um, and when it's your job, it'll be the thing that'll help you make more money. Uh, and you know, you, you'll always get to get to play more games, which are the three biggest things that you want to do when when it's your profession. I, I was reading that one of your, like, I mean, your a lot of your injuries, especially the hamstring ones, came from a, a disc that you slipped doing some, uh, what is it, the, the snatch over your head? I'm not too uh, familiar. That's like that squat snatch, uh, whatever yeah, that one is. It's not easy anyways, but you must have, te- your technique wasn't right. No, my technique was shite. And I just come out of school and I didn't get a huge amount of, of weight training at school. Um, and I went into Leinster one day. I was only in a few weeks, and I was lifting with Gervin Dempsey, who was the other fullback at the time. Um, and I was probably a young lad with a little bit of a strut in me, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So in I went, bang, and and the disc slipped there and then. I, I was only 19, and it, it's caused me so much trouble down through the years. Um, and a lot of those hamstring strains, the calf strains, all of those are probably relatable to that incident you know i think i've had i've had easily over 20 epidurals in the course of my career um all because of that one one moment i think right so like i mean the epidurals i'm thinking of my missus giving birth here like what what like i mean is this the day of the match or like how how does that work just from pure pain is it after the match you could take it or is it to get through a match no it's i don't know if I'm not too up to date with my pre-birth epidurals, <laughs> to be honest with you, Wooly. I'm um, sure it's the same kind of stuff. Anyways, it must be. It's the same kind of stuff, yeah. Like you, you'd never, you'd never get it before a game um, or after a game. It's, it's generally at a time when you've got seven days to recover and, and let right. all the, all the, the juices and the good stuff kick in. Um, but there was one time I think I had an epidural on, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, the week of a Heineken Cup final, and you know I, I couldn't walk on the Monday, and then all of a sudden you're able to go out on the Saturday and run around the field. It's crazy. It just obviously brings down the inflammation or whatever. Like, how is your body now after all all that? Because I presume you know the epidurals give leading tricking you into being able to play or whatever it does. You know, like I mean, yeah. are are you broken up from all from all that? I'm I'm not too broken up to be honest. I always thought I'd be a little bit worse. Um, I've one ankle that gives me a bit of trouble in me and my back. Um, you know, I, I I was pretty lucky throughout the course of my career that I've only had maybe five surgeries, um, three knees, a back, uh, and a bicep tendon that, that are ruptured. So, you know, over the course of fifteen years, that's that's not too bad. And there was a hell of a lot of injections in there as well. Um, but you know that's just the nature of the game a little bit. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like it's a huge contact sport. Like even from the time you started, the fellas you were getting hit by, compared to I suppose when you're finished. Like I mean, they're mountains, and you're in. You know, you're being hit full head on by them. Yeah, like people. People have changed as well. Like on a rugby field, lads are just getting bigger, stronger, more explosive now. Um. You know, it's worth saying as well, I was at the very back of the field too. So I wasn't always dealing with too many of the big lads up front. And so I wasn't necessarily taking the same collisions and hits as some of the other lads. Um, but it, it, it is a contact sport and you're going to get injuries. That's, that's, that's just the bottom line. Yeah. So, like, I mean, the regret, obviously, from a personal level is the 100 cap. Like, I mean, from a team point of view, I presume the big criticism of the Irish rugby team is we haven't got past a, 
quarterfinal. quarterfinal. And like since I'm looking looking back, kind of since 2007, since we had re, you know really good teams that were winning, you know, Grand Slams, winning, um, you know, everything that was going in in a European context and at club level, and we can't make the last four of a World Cup. I know it's it's. It's pretty grim reading when you look over the course of the last 15 years, say, considering how good some of the teams were that went to the World Cups. Um, you know, the last World Cup, obviously, losing to Japan in that first game um, meant that we had to play New Zealand. Now, if we won our pool, we were still going to have to play South Africa, who were yeah. the eventual winners. Um, the year before that, Argentina, you know, always seemed to peak at a World Cup. We'd lost seven or eight players the week before. We'd lost our captain, Johnny Sex, and a few other really key uh, players. O'Connell was the captain at the time. And then 2011 World Cup, we were, we, we were probably only an average enough team, but, but got beaten by by a better Wales team. Um, you know, so it's, it's tough when a four-year period and a big cycle can come down to, to one-week games. And that's what World Cups is all about. And, and we've, we've definitely underachieved at World Cups over the last 15 years. Um, and hopefully that, that, that monkey will be off the back soon because, you know, it's always there at the back of your head. And anytime you know, I played the All Blacks 10 times before I managed to actually beat them. And... You know, the week of the game, you're always saying, well, if we play our very best rugby this week, you know, we can beat them. But you never fully believe it until you've actually done it. So any team, any Irish team that goes to a quarterfinal of a World Cup now are always going to have the horrors of the previous teams standing over them. Um, you know, and you just need to make sure that we're peaking at the right time, which which has probably been another criticism of the teams over the last few years that we've, we've, we've peaked probably too early in the four-year cycle. Well, that's the thing. But like, I mean, how can consecutive World Cups make the same mistake if it is a peaking um, issue? You're supposed to be different managers. Yeah, different managers. Like, you know, in, in 2018, we had, we'd won the Grand Slam. We'd beaten yeah. New Zealand. We were the best team in the world. So the World Cup was only nine months away. So we probably fell into a little bit of a false sense of security thinking, well, if we just keep doing what we're doing, we'll be able to match the best in the world. Um, but yeah. what happened during the course of that, that other teams started changing how they played and said, well, we're not going to beat Ireland at this game, the aerial battle, the good set piece front out. We're going to have to go and change our game. Um, and England revolved really well. New Zealand evolved their game really well. And by the time a year came around, we hadn't really improved much as a team. Um, you know, And that's, that's, that's probably a criticism that, that we as a group of coaches and, and players had to take at the time. Yeah, I suppose it is difficult after 2018 when we had such a good year to go and change. So if, if we had changed it and it didn't work out, it's like, what the hell are you doing changing something, you know, that won us a Grand Slam exactly. and beat the All Blacks? So. And, and like, you have to remember, we, we were, for the first time in the history of Irish rugby, we were ranked number one in the world. Now, it's, it's not, you know, it's not an overly valid excuse but at the same time, it's it's easy to see how we fell into that trap as well. Yeah. Come here, I want to talk to you about these November internationals because I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the November internationals because they used to be called friendlies, right? And they come at a time where our season's just, uh, or we're preparing for our season. So we're hitting it, you know, hard. New Zealand have probably, this Southern Hemisphere teams have, are, have finished their season. My 
kind of uh, analysis of this is that Ireland hit those November internationals at GEA Championship summer pace and New Zealand, South Africa, Australia hit them at maybe National League kind of pace. Would that be a fair, like they have another level to go to at World Cup, whereas we've shown our full hand, this is the best we can play, you know, and, and we've just beaten you, but that's, 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 that's what we have. Yeah, like it's, it's a fair assumption to make. Um, now, I'll, I'll start off by saying, listen, it, it, it's a friendly fixture, but no, no test international match is a friendly, um, you know, because you play those just as hard as you would play a Six Nations decider. Um, you know, when, when some of these Southern Hemisphere teams are coming at the end of their season, they've already done a long season. They've been away from their families for two months you know you're on holidays in a couple of a couple of weeks time you know there's definitely times when you're like i just want to get this season wrapped up and done with um you know ireland sometimes can be caught out in november a little bit because you haven't played together as a team since since the june before that so you can be a little bit rusty for for some of those times you've just come back from your holidays you've done a pre-season listen it's it's not as equally balanced as you'd like it to be and i think that's why rugby eventually should be looking to go down the route of having a global calendar um, where everyone starts on the same date, everyone finishes on the same date, and you'll be able to see a lot more clearly where teams are ranking on a yearly basis. Um, but, you know, just, just the, the nature of scheduling makes that, makes that difficult. But, yeah. you know, when Ireland go down to New Zealand now for three weeks in June time, you will get a lot clearer picture of where things are at. And, and and maybe, you know, not the fanfare about the November victory because it was an unbelievable performance and it was a great victory, but it just might put things into perspective a little bit more. Does it, do you think sometimes we over... I don't listen, it's, I don't want to play it down because it's unbelievable to beat New Zealand, but um, I don't really know how to how to frame the question. Do we overemphasize, overhype those wins when... They're, like for, here's a question do you see a difference in maybe the attitude or the body language of the New Zealand players in November International compared to when you played them in a World Cup yeah 100% um, you know so do, now, we, do, do we overhype those November wins and not put them in the context that we need to put them into well listen I don't think we overhype them because you're only judging from one game Um and listen, anytime you beat the All Blacks, it's a serious result because, yeah. you know, they're they're one of the best sports teams in the history of sport, I would say. Um, you know, but I, I think as, as as this team gets a little bit better and as as a country, we, we start to to set our expectations a little bit higher of, of what we want the national team to do and to achieve. Well, then maybe beating the All Blacks isn't as big a deal as it used to be. And the more we can do that, the better it'll become. Um, you know, England have won a World Cup now, but when we play England at home, we always almost expect to win. Um, so, listen, I don't think we, we overhype them because there, there's only a few games in a calendar year that you can really get excited about. Yeah. And, and you know, New Zealand and Dublin is always one of them. 
maybe that's a fair point that you make though like I mean we beat New Zealand again in the November internationals like I, I was criticising the players for doing a lap of honour now of course it was a year out from Covid and there hadn't been fans and you know I've been overly, overly critical on that but I'd like to get to the point where we beat New Zealand in November internationals and it's grand but the World Cup is the bigger one now let's you know it's not you know it's nice to beat them but you know that kind of be the attitude rather than Whoa, we've just beaten them again. You know that kind yeah, of way. Yeah, no, you're, you're dead right. But you know, if if a player did an interview after that game, um, you know, in November, just gone and said, "Yeah, listen, this is great," but you know, the World Cup is the big one. You're you're talking about a, a period of time that is two years away. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so you don't want to get too much caught into that trap as well. But you know, every, everyone knows that the World Cup is the big stage that you want to perform on. Everyone knows that we've underachieved in World Cups, so you know it's it's always the it's always going to be the big point that you want to you know keep getting better every single week. Um, and to be fair to some of the lads after after that game, that you know I think the the lap of honor sometimes is it's a difficult one because when when you've got sixty thousand people staying in the stadium because they've had such a buzz of the day, it's the first time back at a live sport event. You know, the, the players aren't always doing lap of honours just for themselves. A lot of the time it's to thank the supporters as well. Um, yeah. You know, so I think it's, it's easy to jump on the, on, on not a bandwagon, but jump on board and say, geez, these players are really milking this way, aren't they? Whereas sometimes <laughs> in the player's head, it's just we want to show a bit of appreciation to the crowd as well. Yeah, and I think the whole idea was the first full house in the Aviva in whatever time with the COVID restrictions. So that kind of played into the lap of honour a little bit as well, I'm sure. That's the first time in 33 minutes the C word's been mentioned. <laughs> Why, do you think I'm obsessed with it or something? Uh, no, well, you, you, you like the odd little Twitter rant, don't you? I do, yeah. I don't like being told what to do, Rob. I was the same all my life. I don't like people telling me what to do. I want are to be you, left alone. Are you considering politics? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, the only politics I'm interested in is just letting the politicians leave me alone to live the way I want to live. That's kind of my my attitude. Politics in general. Not so. What are you going to do? Any politics maybe for you, or what? What are you interested in doing now, or have you started already? No, listen. It's sorry. Politics. No, it's definitely not <laughs> not not a route that I'm going to go down. Um, listen, I'm, I'm still trying to not find my feet, but be patient with it. I've done, been a professional sports person since I was 18. You live in this bubble where everything is done for you. The only thing you care about is training the next day and the match on the weekend. And, and you lose a little bit of, not a sense of reality, but you don't really understand what's going on out there in the real world. Um, you know, I eventually I'm going to have to get another job. I don't know what that is going to be. Um, but you need to be patient with yourself because when you come out of rugby, you only get a few bites of the cherry. And and you don't want to be one of those, these people that bumble around from one job to the next job to the next. And, and you, you can become lost quite quickly. Um, so it, it'll take a bit of time. I don't know what, what it's going to be yet. Um, I do know it's not going to be politics. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, it, I'm just trying to be patient with myself. But you're like, I mean, it's crazy. You're almost making decisions when you were 18 and you're leaving cert, you were going to be a rugby player. And the rest of us were like, well, what am I going to do in college to, you know, what am I going to do as a job? You're almost making that decision kind of like, what do I like? What do you, you know, what do you want to do now? 
Yeah, and, and that's that's the big challenge when you come out of the sporting world, and, and it is a big transition. Um, you know, like I, I was always well, my mother always bathed ahead of me to to go to college, so I finished my degree. Uh, I studied in UCD, and then I got a bad knee injury that I was out for years. So I went and did an MBA in business. So I, I have those qualifications in the bag if I need them. Um, but it still doesn't make that transition any easier. And, you know, there, there's not one thing that I can say now that, yeah, that's the route that I want to go down. Right. OK. But you, like, I mean, you've already started a bit of punditry. Like, I suppose Draco is pretty much doing punditry full time, you know, like, I mean, there probably is a career there and it keeps you in the game. I mean, you, you know, you're not completely out of it. It's nice. Maybe a soft landing a little bit. Yeah, it is. And listen, like, like you said, I, I've... This game is all I know. So it's, it's very difficult one day just to stop and say, right, that's you completely finished with the game. So it, it does help that you're still a part of the game in some capacity. You can go to them, you can watch, you can comment on them. Um, you know, so the, the, the punditry is, is, is great for me at the moment. I'm enjoying it. Is it something that I want to do long, long term? I don't think so. Um, but at this moment in time, it makes the most sense for me. Um, you know, and, and it's 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 an easy transition, like you say, an easier transition. Right. Okay. Like, I mean, why didn't you stay in Australia? Are you absolutely crazy? I'm sure that you you might have got another extension for another year there. What brought you home? Why would you leave Perth to come back here? Oh, it's some Cooley Kick- it was Cooley Kickums, was it? It was it was Cooley <laughs> Kickums that brought me back. Um, nah, to, to be honest with you, it was my body just gave up on me. Um, you know, I wasn't really enjoying the game as much as I did when I was growing up you know the more rugby you play the better you get mentally at playing it you can see things earlier you can understand what's going to happen next a little bit quicker um but your body just doesn't do the things that it used to be able to do and, and that was something that I found quite difficult um you know you're getting up for training on a Monday morning and, and you're sore and it's the same on the Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and you know, there comes a point when when you just say, "I've had enough of it," um, and I, I genuinely find myself really lucky to be able to say that because so many players have to finish up early because they didn't get a new contract or they got an injury or or whatnot. Like, had you told me when I was eighteen that I would have played professional rugby for sixteen, seventeen years, you know, I would have bit your hand off at it, and to come out the other end with no serious injuries and and still be able to lead a, a pretty active life going on. Um, you know, I see that as a real result. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It definitely is. But you still should have stayed in Perth for another for another little while anyways. But look, it's good to have you back home. Come here, Rob. I'm not going to keep you any any longer. Thanks very much for, for giving us your time. I really appreciate it. You're the first uh, Woolly Meats. So Woolly. Well, hope, we, hope, hope we got off to a good start. I'm delighted uh, to be the first man on, Woolly. And best of luck with the new podcast. Fair play to you. And I will be listening out to many more. Yeah, brilliant stuff from Rob there. Um, remember, Smaller Fish GEA is in association with Benetti Menswear, and we will talk to you all on Thursday. Yeah, I've spoken to the players, and uh, we've had a full and frank discussion, and uh, we all agree that the uh, Smaller Fish guys are not just accredited clubs and their counties, but to, to Homo sapiens all over the world. I want nothing to do with that podcast. Absolutely not. The smaller fish, not for me, no way. We're only the small little fish out there, so we are, and uh, we're trying hard to make it through.
but it's hard to get the brakes when you're the smaller fish.